This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Mohsin Hamid read his story, The Face in the Mirror, from the May 16, 2022 issue of the magazine. Hamid is the author of four novels, including How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia and Exit West, a winner of the LA Times Book Prize. A new novel, The Last White Man, from which this story was adapted, will be published in August. Now here's Mohsin Hamid. The Face in the Mirror One morning, Anders, a white man, woke up to find he had turned a deep and undeniable brown. This dawned upon him gradually, and then suddenly, first as a sense as he reached for his phone that the early light was doing something strange to the color of his forearm. Subsequently, and with a start, as a momentary conviction that there was somebody else in bed with him, male, darker, But this, terrifying though it was, was surely impossible, and he was reassured that the other moved as he moved, was in fact not a person, not a separate person, but was just him, Anders, which caused a wave of relief. For if the idea that someone else was there was only imagined, then of course the notion that he had changed color was a trick too, an optical illusion, or a mental artifact born in the slippery halfway place between dreams and wakefulness, except that by now he had his phone in his hands, and he had reversed the camera, and he saw that the face looking back at him was not his at all. Anders scrambled out of his bed and began to rush to his bathroom, but, calming himself, he forced his gait to slow, to become more deliberate, measured, and whether he did this to assert his control over the situation to compel reality to return through sheer strength of mind, or because running would have frightened him more, made him forever into prey being pursued, he did not know. The bathroom was shabbily but comfortingly familiar. The cracks in the tiles, the dirt in the grouting, the streak of dried toothpaste drip on the outside of the sink. The interior of the medicine cabinet was visible, the mirror door ajar, and Anders raised his hand and swung his reflection into place before his eyes. It was not that of an Anders he recognized. He was overtaken by emotion, not so much shock or sorrow, though those things were there too, but above all, the face replacing his filled him with anger, or rather, more than anger, an unexpected, murderous rage. He wanted to kill the colored man who confronted him here in his home to extinguish the life animating this other's body, to leave nothing standing but himself, as he was before, and he slammed the side of his fist into the face, cracking it slightly, 
and causing the whole fitting, cabinet, mirror and all, to skew, like a painting after an earthquake has passed. Anders stood, the pain in his hand muted by the intensity that had seized him, and he felt himself trembling, a vibration so faint as barely to be perceptible, but then stronger, like a dangerous winter chill, like freezing outdoors, unsheltered, and it drove him back to his bed and under his sheets, and he lay there for a long while, hiding, willing this day, just begun, please, please, not to begin. Anders waited for an undoing, an undoing that did not come, and the hours passed, and he realized that he had been robbed, that he was the victim of a crime, the horror of which only grew, a crime that had taken everything from him, that had taken him from him. For how could he say he was Anders now, be Anders now, with this other man staring him down, on his phone, in the mirror, and he tried not to keep checking, but every so often he would check again, and see the theft again, and when he was not checking, there was no escaping the sight of his arms and his hands, dark, moreover frightening, for while they were under his control, there was no guarantee they would remain so, and he did not know if the idea of being throttled, which kept popping into his head like a bad memory, was something he feared, or what he most wanted to do. Eventually he attempted, with no appetite, to eat a sandwich, to be calmer, steadier, and he told himself that it would be all right, although he was unconvinced. He wanted to believe that somehow he would change back, or be fixed, but already he doubted, and did not believe, and when he questioned whether it was entirely in his imagination, and tested this by taking a picture and placing it in a digital album, the algorithm that had, in the past, unfailingly suggested his name, so sure, so reliable, could not identify him. Anders did not normally mind being alone, but as he was just then, it was as if he was not alone, was, rather, intense and hostile company, trapped indoors because he did not dare to step outside, and he went from his computer to his refrigerator to his bed to his sofa, moving on in his small space when he could not stand to remain a minute longer where he was, but there was no escaping Anders, for Anders, that day. The discomfort only followed. He began, he could not help it, to investigate himself, the texture of the hair on his scalp, the stubble on his face, the grain of the skin on his hands, the reduced visibility of the blood vessels there, the color of his toenails, the muscles of his calves, and, stripping, frantic, his penis, unremarkable in size and heft, unremarkable except in not being his, and therefore bizarre, beyond acceptance, like a sea creature that should not exist. Anders messaged in sick the first day. On the second, he messaged to say he was more sick than he'd thought, and probably out for the week, upon which his boss called him, and when Anders did not answer, his boss messaged saying, you better be dying, but he left Anders alone after that. That week Anders felt vaguely menaced as he went around town, which he did as little as he could manage, and though this carried its own risks, he wore a hoodie, his face invisible from the sides, and if it had been colder on those glorious early autumn days, he would have worn gloves, but that would have looked ridiculous given the temperature, so he kept his hands in his pockets and a backpack slung over one shoulder to carry whatever he had come out to get, rolling paper or bread or a replacement charging cable for his phone, 
which meant that his hands could mostly stay hidden, slipping out only to open a door or slide a pavement across, a flash of brown skin like a fish darting up to the surface and down again, aware of the hazards of being seen. People who knew him no longer knew him. He passed them in his car or on the sidewalk, where sometimes they gave him extra room, and where sometimes, unthinkingly, he did the same. No one hit him or knifed him or shot him. No one grabbed him. No one even shouted at him. At least not yet. And Anders was not sure where his sense of threat was coming from. But it was there. It was strong. And once it was obvious to him that he was a stranger to those he could call by name, he did not try to look in their faces, to let his gaze linger in ways that could be misconstrued. Almost as disturbing as seeing someone he recognized was the feeling of being recognized by someone he did not himself recognize. Someone dark, waiting at a bus stop, or wielding a mop, or sitting in a group at the back of a pickup truck. Sitting in a group that was, he could not help it. That was like a group of animals, not humans, being transported from one task, one sight, to the next. And actually, this was more disturbing, the moment when one dark man would look at him, look at Anders as though he saw him, their eyes meeting for an instant, not in friendliness or hostility, but just as people's eyes meet, as people. And when this happened, Anders would look quickly away. Anders put off telling his father why he was not sure, maybe because his father had always seemed a little disappointed in him, and this would add to his disappointment, or maybe because his father had enough on his plate and Anders did not want to increase his burden, or maybe because until his father was told it would not really have happened. Anders would still be Anders, there in the house where he grew up, and the telling would undo that and make everything different, irrevocably different. But whatever the reason, he waited. He waited and then he told. He did it over the phone, which was a cowardly thing to do, and his father hung up the first time, and the second time asked him if he was high, if he thought this was a joke. And when Anders said no to both things, his father asked, with steel in his voice, a steel familiar to Anders, if his son was trying to call him a racist, to which Anders replied he most definitely was not. And so his father said, Show me, smart guy. Come here and show me if you can. Anders's father had beaten him properly only once. He had hit him more than a few times, but a solid beating, that was only once, for his mother had long forbidden it. And the time he had beaten Anders it was because Anders had been negligent with a loaded rifle, discharging it by mistake, negligent after repeatedly being warned. And back then, Anders was two heads shorter than his father, and his father, Anders thought, had been right to beat him. But it had been a beating Anders would never forget, not the beating or the lesson. And that was the point. A gun was a marker on the journey of death and was to be respected as such, like a coffin or a grave or a meal in winter. And as he drove to his father now, though Anders was the taller, heavier man, for some reason that beating found its way right into the front of Anders's mind. Anders's father was a construction foreman, gaunt and ill to his core, ill in his guts, but he did not trust doctors and refused to see them, and his pale eyes burned like he had a fever, or like he was praying for a murder. They had been that way since Anders's mother died or since she had gotten sick and it became clear she would not get better, 
or maybe since before that, Anders was not sure. But for all his gauntness, his back was erect, and his forearms were like corded ropes, and he could walk carrying an improbable load and barely sway, with a kind of strength that just got things done. A fearsome strength, if Anders was honest. And his father was waiting for him, on the stoop of his house, and he was looking at his son, the son who had reminded him of his wife, the boy's mother. Not that the boy was soft, but he was gentler than was good for him. And he was lost in dreams too easily, and he had her fine stamp on him, a boy in his mother's mold. And as he saw his boy now, as he watched Anders approach, that was all gone. She was gone. And this boy, who made easy things hard, who had not yet found his way, this boy, Anders' father could see, was going to suffer. And his mother had vanished. She was nowhere to be glimpsed in him. And he stood there, Anders' father, a cigarette in his mouth, one hand holding onto the fabric of his son's sleeve, the other rigid at his side. And he wept. He wept like a shudder, like an endless cough, without a sound, staring at the man who had been Anders, until his son took him inside, and they both at last sat down. Reports began to emerge from around the country of people changing, reports at first utterly disreputable and easily disregarded and roundly mocked, but later picked up by reliable voices as a question to be confirmed, being confirmed, apparently happening. It was on the television. Anders watched as on the news a reporter interviewed someone who had stopped being white. To his boss, Anders explained his situation, which was not unique or contagious as far as anyone knew, and he returned to the gym after a week off, and his boss was waiting for him at the entrance, bigger than Anders remembered him, though obviously the same size, and his boss looked him over and said, I would have killed myself. Anders shrugged, unsure how to reply, and his boss added, if it was me. Though it smelled of sweat, the gym was empty, it being early, the steel racks and wood-floored platforms and benches with duct-tape tears in their upholstery all unoccupied, and the two of them worked out separately before the gym's members showed up, Anders's boss clanging through monster sets on the squat, thick, his elbows like knees, his knees like heads, his face red with rage, as it was whenever he lifted heavy. Anders's boss had said he would have killed himself, and the following week a man in town did just that, his story followed by Anders in the local press, or rather online in the regional section of a large publication, the local paper having shut down long ago. This man shooting himself in front of his own house, a shooting heard but not seen by a neighbor, and called in, and assumed to be an act of home defense, the dark body lying there, that of an intruder shot with his own gun after a struggle. But the homeowner was not present and was nowhere to be found. And then the wedding ring and the wallet and the phone on the dead man were all tallied up and the messages that had been sent and the experts weighed in and the sum of it all was clear. In other words, that a white man had indeed shot a dark man, but also that the dark man and the white man were the same. The mood in town was changing more rapidly than its complexion for Anders could not as yet perceive any real shift in the number of dark people on the streets. Or, if he could, he could not be sure of it. Those who had changed still being, by all accounts, few and far between. But the mood, yes, the mood was changing. And the shelves of the stores were more bare. And at night the roads were more abandoned. 
and even the days were shorter and cooler than they had been recently, the leaves no longer as confident in their green. And while these seasonal shifts were perhaps only the course of things, the course of things felt to Anders more fraught. There were flare-ups of violence in town, a brawl here, a shooting there, and the mayor repeatedly called for calm. But militants had begun to appear on the streets, pale-skinned militants, some dressed almost like soldiers in combat uniform, or halfway like soldiers, with military-style trousers and civilian jackets, and others dressed like hunters, in woodland colors, or in jeans and ammunition vests. But all the militants, whatever their attire, visibly armed, and as for the police, the police made no real effort to stop them. The next time Anders went to see his father was on a day with some chill in it. He used the back roads, proceeding hesitantly, pausing and observing at intersections, like a herbivore, out of an instinct for self-preservation, ascertaining what was ahead before he moved, and he had gloves on his hands, and a hoodie over his head, and sunglasses over his eyes, ineffectual concealment, but perhaps enough, from a distance. And it was not that he had been threatened, for he had not been, not yet, but just that he felt threatened, and so he was taking no chances, or none that he could avoid. His father was slow to answer when Anders knocked on his door, and Anders was struck by how much his father had deteriorated in the weeks since Anders had last seen him. And the son knew for certain that the father was leaving now, knew that this mighty, skinny man was on his way out, nearly gone. And Anders was glad for his sunglasses, so that his father would not have to see the knowledge enter Anders's eyes. And his father was bent over, just a bit, he who had always stood so straight, bent as though his illness had punched him in the stomach that morning, and he did not want to show that the blow continued to hurt. But when something so straight and so important is bent, even just a bit, it is remarkable to behold, and Anders beheld it, and they shook hands, their grips firm, firmer than usual, to compensate for the infirmity, and Anders's father did not like to look at Anders, at what his son had become, and he did not like that he did not like it, and so he forced himself to look at his son, to hold on to his son's hand even longer, the brown skin against his pale skin, and he clapped Anders on the shoulder and squeezed him there, for Anders's father an expressive gesture, and he inclined his head in welcome, and took his darkened son back home. Inside the house, the furnishings were dated, and did not match Anders's father, what he would have bought for himself, for they had been bought by Anders's mother, and reminded Anders of her, the little frills on the sofa covers, the lace coasters on the side tables, and, in the living room, the photos were of all of them, of Anders's parents as young people, of Anders as a baby and as a boy, of the family together, none more recent than about a decade ago, photos already aged by the passage of time. Anders's father listened as his son told him of his unease, and he watched his son drink a beer while he let his own sit, barely sipped, his beer there out of habit and propriety, because Anders's father could no longer manage the drinking of it, and he fetched a metal flask with his cash in it, and gave money to his son, over his son's objections, and he went through his cupboards and helped his son load some essential supplies into his car, or handed them to his son anyway, the boy would have to do the work, standing was hard enough and he ignored his pain, for it was part of him now, constant, not remotely bearable, but also not avoidable, and so put up with, like a nasty sibling. And he retrieved a rifle and a box of shells, 
and he outlasted his boy's reluctance, saying, take it, and waiting. And he witnessed his boy do what his boy needed to do, which is to stop pretending, and to start to accept the situation, and to receive what his father was holding, what was obviously needed. And his boy grew serious as he held the weight of the rifle and the shells, which was good. Seriousness was what the situation required. Once he had returned to his own home, Anders wondered whether the rifle actually made him safer, for he felt he was all alone, and it was better to be non-confrontational than to stand up to trouble, and he imagined that somehow people were more likely to come for him if they found out he was armed, even though they would not find out, even though so many folks were armed. He just had this sense that it was essential not to be seen as a threat, for to be seen as a threat, as dark as he was, was to risk one day being obliterated. At work, Anders was no longer the only one who had changed. There were others, and a gym that had been almost a whites-only gym now often had three, or even four, dark men present. And Anders had thought this would make things better, but it seemed the opposite was happening, and the gym was increasingly tense, and men who had known each other for years now acted like they did not know each other, or worse, disliked each other, bore a grudge. One night, as Anders was ready to leave, Two men got into an argument, and they took it outside, and they were older guys, but big, bulky and strong and surprisingly quick despite their bellies, and they started to shove each other in the parking lot, and a few people gathered round, but those who gathered did not say anything. That was what struck Anders. They did not tell the two to stop or cheer them on. They were silent. They just watched. And soon the two men were punching, and it was ferocious, and out of the grunts and the shuffles came the sound of a fist hitting the side of a face, the solid crack of it, the thud, softly liquid and bone-breaking at the same time, such a visceral, disturbing sound that it made Anders turn away, and he walked off, walked off without seeing what happened next, whether the dark one had the better of it or the pale one. Anders did not want to see, and though he did not see, the sound lingered, and it kept coming to him even as he lay in his bed that night, causing a wince or a grimace a physical response, Anders twitching there by himself, in echo. Anders had heard that the militants had begun to clear people out, dark people, running them out of town, and when he saw cars pull up to his house, he knew what it meant, though it is perhaps always a surprise when what one is waiting for, what one is dreading, a calamity of this magnitude, actually happens. So Anders was prepared and not prepared. But, Prepared as he was, he was not expecting one of the three men who came for him to be a man he knew, a man he was acquainted with, which made it much worse, more intimate, like being shushed as you were strangled. And Anders did not pause for them to get to his door. Anders opened it himself, and he stood there in the doorway, his rifle in his hands, a ready carry, with muzzle high, the son a picture of his father on a hunt. Anders hoped he looked more brave than he felt, and the three of them were armed, but they stopped when they saw him, a few paces away, and they stared at him with contempt and fascination. And Anders thought the one he knew stared at him with enthusiasm too, like this was special for him, personal. And Anders could perceive how self-righteous they were, how certain that he, Anders, was in the wrong, that he was the bandit here, trying to rob them, they who had been robbed already and had nothing left, just their whiteness, the worth of it, and they would not let him take that, not him or anyone else. But they did not particularly relish that he had a weapon 
and seemed to have grabbed part of the initiative. That was their role, after all, and they were not expecting this from him, and it muddied the simplicity of the situation, and so they halted, and they faced off, his acquaintance, the two strangers, and Anders, and Anders said, Hello, guys, what can I do? They spoke, and Anders listened, and in the end the men said he had better be gone when they got back, and Anders said they would have to see about that, and as Anders said it, he almost believed he would stay, and he had an anger in his voice, an anger he was glad for, despite their dismissive smiles. But when they withdrew to their cars, and Anders felt the magnitude of his relief, a relief that washed over him and drenched him with defeat, he knew that he would be gone, that, mere minutes hence, he would be fleeing, and this place, his place, so familiar, would be lost to him, his no longer. When Anders arrived at his father's house, his father took him inside and drew the tattered curtains and then parked his son's car, the car that had been his wife's car, behind the house on the narrow sliver of land that his wife had called her garden, where once grew flowers and tomatoes and snap peas and thyme, but which now was a patch of dirt with tufts of weeds, weeds dry and dead at the onset of winter. And Anders's father checked to make sure the car was not visible from the street, moving weakly and stiffly, but also with purpose. And after that, spent beyond reckoning, he sat himself next to his son in the living room, the television on and their rifles at their sides, and they waited there for someone to show up and demand that Anders be given over. But no one did. No one came. No, not on that first night at least. Anders's father was not yet used to Anders, to how Anders looked, and in a sense he had never been used to him, not even when Anders was a child, silent for so long, struggling to tie his laces or to write in a handwriting that people could read. For Anders's father, though not a particularly good student, had always been competent, competent at the tasks he was given, and not just in school, outside it too. But his son, his son was different, a difference the boy's mother took to naturally, and so the boy became her boy, and there were walls between them, between him and his son, and Anders's father could understand the bullies who had picked on his son when his son was small, and he could understand those who wanted Anders gone from town now, who were afraid of him, or threatened by him, by the dark man his boy had become, and they had a right to be. He would have felt the same in their shoes. He liked it no better than they did, and he could see the end his boy signaled, the end of things. He was not blind, but they would not take his boy, not easily, not from him, the boy's father, and whatever Anders was, whatever his skin was, he was still his father's son, and still his mother's son, and he came first, before any other allegiance. He was what truly mattered, and Anders's father was ready to do right by his son. It was a duty that meant more to him than life, and he wished he had more life in him, but he would do what he could with what little life he had. In the morning the power went out, and the house was gloomy, with the curtains drawn and no lights, but still there was illumination enough to see by, and Anders's father judged it best they saved their candles for nightfall, and so they managed, in the dimness, and then Anders discovered that his phone no longer had reception, and neither did his father's, and Anders wondered if the service had been cut off intentionally, or if the backup batteries at the cell towers had died. Anders was alone, lying propped up in his old childhood bed, far more alone without access to the online world, or if not literally more alone, then more alone in how he felt. And yes, the chatter online had been grim, not just in town but all over the country, 
but it had been something, and now it was taken from him, and time itself slowed, unwinding, like the minutes were tired, were reaching the finish, and then around midnight the power returned, without warning, and his phone caught a signal, and time spooled back up again, and continued. Days passed, and although they heard the crack of gunfire on occasion, one night right outside, they were not themselves confronted, and Anders should have been relieved to have escaped the militants, temporarily. But if he was, it was a fraught relief, for living again in close proximity to his father, he was shocked to discover the degree of physical pain his father was enduring. Pain his father could mask for a beat or two, but not for an entire evening, not for hours at a stretch, and Anders could see it in his father's face and in his movements, and though his father tried to spare him and often retired to his bedroom, Anders could hear his muffled grunts and his low-pitched swearing, the battle being waged inside, the battle his father was losing, and it made Anders guilty for not being a better son, for having left his father so abandoned, even if he knew his father would not have permitted it to be otherwise, that just by being here, Anders was taking something from his father, taking his dignity, and forcing his father to allow himself to be seen, as he would not, and did not, wish to be seen. Anders's father rarely left his bedroom now, and there was a smell in it, a smell he could see in Anders's face when his son entered, and sometimes could even smell himself, which was strange, like a fish feeling it was wet, and the smell they could smell was a smell of death, which Anders's father knew was close, and this frightened him, but he was not completely afraid of being frightened. No, he had lived with fear a long time, and he would not let fear master him, not yet, and he would try to continue, to continue to not let fear master him. And often he did not have the energy to think, but when he did, he thought of what made a death a good death, and his sense was that a good death would be one that did not scare his boy, that a father's duty was not to avoid dying in front of his son, this a father could not control, but rather that if a father did have to die in front of his son, he ought to die as well as he was able, to do it in a way that left his son with something, that left his son with the strength to live, and the strength to know that one day he could die well himself, as his father had. And so Anders's father strove to make his final journey to his death into a giving, into a fathering, and it would not be easy. It was not easy. It was almost impossible. But that was what he set his mind, while he had his mind, on attempting to do. The pain had reached proportions where periodically there was nothing else left. Year-long hours where there was no person, no Anders's father, just the pain. But then the pain receded for a bit, and there was a person again. And when he was a person again, Anders's father could look his changed son in the eye and nod to him, and let the boy take his hand, and listen to the boy's sparse, gentle words, so like the words his wife, the boy's mother, had once used. And then, when it was time, gesture with his head toward the door, so the boy might step away, as the pain came to claim his father again. After weeks there in hiding, Anders finally ventured out of his father's house, ventured out to score medication, to blunt some of the edge of his father's agony, learning about a hospice employee known for his shady dealings, and calling him. And the man who answered said Anders would need to come in person if he wanted to talk, and he sounded so white that Anders did not relish revealing his own color. But Anders put his rifle in his car, and mustered his courage, and drove over there, and no one bothered him on the road, and the man who sounded white turned out to be dark, and Anders thought he did not look like his voice, and then he thought, who knows, maybe he thinks the same about me. 
Anders explained his situation, and it was unclear if the man believed him or if he did not, but he advised Anders on what Anders needed, and Anders paid in cash, and there was, of course, no prescription, and no attempt to pretend there was a prescription. There was just a brown paper bag that, for some reason, reminded Anders of when he was a boy, and his father took Anders with him to work, and they sat among all the strong men at that building site, and the men respected his father. You could see it in how they acted, and Anders had felt proud as he sat with them, a boy among men, and they had opened their bags and had lunch together like equals. On the way back to his father with the painkillers, both hands on the steering wheel, Anders noticed just how many dark faces there were, and how the town was a different town now, a town in a different place, a different country, with all these dark people around, more dark people than white people, and it made Anders uneasy, even though he was dark too. But he was reassured to observe that some of the stores had reopened, and the traffic lights were mostly working, and he even passed an ambulance, and it was just driving normally, no siren blaring, just driving from some place to some place on a regular day, in no hurry, how crazy was that? And when he got home, he went to his father and gave his father the medication. And then Anders passed from room to room and spread the curtains. He spread the curtains wide. There would be moments in his father's last days when he spoke. Just a word here or there, or occasionally the shortest of sentences. And Anders was glad for these moments, these words, even though he did not always understand them. For his father no longer spoke as clearly as he once did. And now... When words were said that were no more than sounds, Anders often sensed his mother. Or anyway, Anders sensed his memories and his missing of her, and he hoped his father sensed his mother as well. Anders's father sometimes looked at the dark person who sat at his bedside and knew it was his son. But sometimes he looked at Anders and did not know who he was. But he knew that he had a duty to this person, that he ought to give him what he could, and so he tried to, and did his very best, even or especially when he was unsure who this person was, because then he felt a father feeling, or maybe it was a son feeling, as though he was the son and this person was the father, both of them father, both of them son, and they had a bond, and they would make the passage together, or, if not together, at least they would approach it, not unaccompanied. Anders's father died on a crisp, clear morning, shortly after dawn, and Anders was with him in his room when he passed, for he had noticed a change in his father's breathing that night, and he had stayed there with him, and his father had opened his eyes in the darkness, and he had seen Anders at his bedside, Anders seeing his father seeing Anders, and Anders's father had shut his eyes again, and his already labored breathing had grown more labored, until the effort was palpable, the sound of it filling the room, as though Anders's father was breathing through a cloth that was getting thicker and thicker, and the force required by his lungs was increasing, and when he stopped breathing, it was after a mighty breath, a mighty breath that took everything out of him, that took him out of him. And with that breath, Anders's father was no more. Anders did not cry at first. He simply sat. And in sitting, it was as if they were waiting for something, Anders and his father, the hand in Anders's hand, not yet cold. And it was not until Anders took out his phone, a phone he hated in that moment, hating its profanity, the falseness of the distancing it committed against what felt like a sacred immediacy. It was not until he held that slab of glass and metal and its screen lit up and he sought to operate it one-handedly, or one-thumbedly, really, that he started to cry, and he wept so hard and so loud that it surprised him and made him want to shush himself. 
Anders's father had died without debt and having paid for his own funeral arrangements, both being matters of principle for him, severe and uncommon principle, and he had apprised Anders in advance of what had to be done, and the men from the mortuary had arrived like well-dressed plumbers, and they had taken Anders's father to their hearse and transported him to the funeral home, Anders following, as though he was afraid his father might be stolen or misplaced. And it was only there that Anders was persuaded to leave his father, the professionals telling Anders he would be called to see his father again, as soon as his father was readied. And they did this telling well. They had experience of it. But more than that, they spoke in a matter-of-fact fashion that was firm without diminishing the enormity of the situation. And Anders listened to them as others before had listened to them, and did as they said, and went home. On the drive back, the sun was shining as though nothing had happened, and there was no snow on the ground, and there were hints of green here and there, and it was a normal day that could have been almost a nice day, a day that suggested, inappropriately, jarringly, that winter would soon be over, and that spring was beginning to be sprung, and it all just hit Anders, unslept and red-eyed. It hit him right in the face. Maybe Anders idealized his father. And maybe Anders's father was a connection to the distant past for Anders. Two traditions with which Anders was not yet familiar, and would not now ever be familiar. But Anders was seized with the idea that he should dig his father's grave, dig it himself. And he wondered then if Anders's father had dug Anders's grandfather's grave. And for some reason he thought, he just thought, that he had. And Anders almost called the graveyard and asked if he could. And then he stopped and said to himself, this is crazy. And he did not do it. He did not do it even though he could imagine the feel of the grain of the wooden shaft and the heft of that shovel in his hands, biting into the dirt. But he regretted that decision later. He regretted it. Not bitterly. No, only faintly. But he regretted it for as long as he lived. At the service for Anders's father, the casket was half open, reminding Anders of the back door of their house, which was a two-part door and Anders's father had sometimes stood there when Anders was a boy, the lower part shut, the upper part open, and Anders's father had liked to rest one hand on the edge and to smoke with the other, and he had looked at Anders with that expression Anders could not quite read, not with affection, not exactly, but not without affection either, more like he was trying to figure something out. And Anders's father's eyes were closed now, and he had makeup on now. It made him a little strange, and Anders could not see his expression and Anders would not see his expression again. Anders had thought he would hate the funeral service, but he did not hate the funeral service. It was comforting to be with these other people who came to offer their respects, and Anders did not know who was who and which was which, not until they introduced themselves, although occasionally he could guess, and there were not many of them, but there were enough, the right number, all those who were present being those who cared, and the ceremony did what it was meant to do which was to make real what had happened, and to weave Anders and those others left behind into a shared web of what they had lost. And Anders's pale father was the only pale person present, the only pale person left in the entire town, for there were by that point no others. And then his casket was closed, and his burial was occurring, and he was committed to the soil, the last white man. And after that, after him, there were none. That was Mohsin Hamid reading his story, The Face in the Mirror, 
He's been publishing fiction in the magazine since 2012. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Camille Bordas reads A Father-to-Be by Saul Bellow. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.